As a Mariupol city council member, one of Olhepakula's biggest problems last year was building a new park. Yeah, it was the city's biggest problem. There was no place for youth where they could feel safe. I wish we again could have these problems. Since Russia invaded Ukraine just over a month ago, she's still thinking about Mariupol citizens and their safety, but in a very different way. About 95% of people whom I know, the colleagues, the friends, they are still not online. There is still no connection. So I don't know how many of them are alive and how many of them have unfortunately died. And now she's doing the only thing she can to try and keep them safe. Praying every day for them and for Ukraine and for Mariupol. Two survivors tell us what's happening to Mariupol, a city under siege since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what's now lost and what's left. I'm Malika Bilal and this is The Take. Let's start with Olha. She's lived in Mariupol her whole life and also runs her own language school, apart from her work with the city council. So what were those first few days like after the war started? Watching the news, talking to people on the phone. The months-long buildup of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine. Has announced a, quote, military operation in eastern Ukraine. Addressing the Ukrainian army. Please lay down your arms. Gradually, the situation was becoming worse and worse, and it was going really fast. Just so to see my mom, brought her some food and did the shopping. She was in Mariupol? She was and she is still now, and I'm waiting for the firing and woman to stop to go and take her from the city. Now she's safe and sound, but it doesn't mean she's going to be safe and sound tomorrow. Can you describe Mariupol for us? What do you remember about growing up there? Mariupol has changed dramatically in the last seven years. As a young girl, I didn't like it at all. I wanted to live in another city, a big city like Donetsk or like Kiev. But in 2015, the situation changed dramatically. Until recently, just under half a million people were living in Mariupol. But before we get to 2015, let's go back one year to 2014, when Russian-backed separatists first started taking the Donbas region in eastern Ukraine. If you look at a map of Ukraine, the major cities in Donbas, from north to south, along Ukraine's eastern border with Russia, are Lugansk and Donetsk. Then, about 60 miles south of Donetsk, is the largest port city on the Sea of Azov, Mariupol, in 2014, fighting erupted in the region, and Ukrainians supporting Russia took over portions of Donetsk and Lugansk. Pro-Russia separatists are now occupying the airport in the eastern capital of Donetsk. So you were born in Lugansk, but you see yourself as Russian, not Ukrainian? Of course, I'm Russian, and most of people in Lugansk region are Russians. So Donetsk and Lugansk were pro-Russian. Kyiv was still very pro-Ukrainian, and the city of Mariupol was mixed. Residents have always been divided over who they support. For a brief period of time, separatists occupied parts of Mariupol. But ultimately, the strategic port city stayed loyal to Ukraine. Kyiv says it has retaken Mariupol from the separatists. 
From 2014 on, pro-Ukrainians around Donbass fled to Mariupol. It's been a beacon for Ukraine in the eastern part of the country, and a strategic thorn in Russia's side. Which brings us to just over a month ago, right before the war started. Russia made another attempt on the port city when President Vladimir Putin recognized the independence of the two separatist states in the Donbass region, the People's Republic of Lugansk and the People's Republic of Donetsk, which includes Mariupol. Putin recognized the independence of two regions in eastern Ukraine, including territory controlled by Kiev. Mariupol, until now, has been controlled by Kiev. As a member of the city council, Olha did her best over the past seven years to keep it that way. We're positive that uh, if we could fight this, you know, Russian uh, world in the minds of the people, giving them good European quality of life here in Ukraine and Mariupol, so then uh, the Russian world was not going to come to us. And that's why we were thinking about development, development, development. Fast forward to February last month as Russian troops were building on Ukraine's borders. Olha thought war was out of the question. And I couldn't believe it, because we're living in the 21st century in Europe, so it's impossible to have war. For me, it was like just nonsense. Marina Holovnova, another Mariupol native, was giving tours of her hometown before the bombing. I left in 2010 and then came back 10 years later. We had a better transportation, we had a better infrastructure, we had new parks. It felt almost like European standards, something we always was working towards. People I was giving the tours to, they wanted to stay longer and come back again and again and maybe, maybe even move. It was a really big change. And since Mariupol was so well defended from the last war, Marina also felt safe. Because we already experienced this threat before, and the city got so much army, so much military bases, so much weapon. So we believed if Russia will start the full-scale invasion, it will be enough to protect the city. But we were wrong. It wasn't enough, apparently. In the morning on the 24th, I was waking up at 5.30 a.m. because of the voices around and people were talking about some shelling, some bombings. And I couldn't understand if I'm still asleep or is it really happening to us? And then I saw like two missed calls from my friend. I didn't have to call her back to understand that the war started. Where I lived with my parents, this district was the first which got bombed. We spent four days sleeping in the bathroom on the floor because it was the closest to this front line. Olha was also feeling the effects of the Russian bombing campaign. Gradually, first electricity went off, then it appeared, then again went off. Then uh, we lost the mobile connection and internet. After that, we lost water, then uh, the gas. Because there was no electricity, there were no air raid sirens. No one knew where the bombs would land next. One hit the school where Marina spent her childhood. Which is 300 meters away, and another two bombs got to the yards next to ours, so it was like super close. 100 to 200 meters away, we were like already isolated, and we just heard bombs falling everywhere. 
and we decided, okay, we just get out of here and we move to the city center because it might be safer. It was a risk. She knew they were taking their lives in their hands. You have to cross the bridge to get to the central part of Mariupol, which is like 10 kilometers away. But they got there. And initially, it seemed like a good decision, she says. The central part of the city was absolutely safe. We saw people jogging. All the shops were opened. It was almost silent. Just 10 kilometers away, the city already started to look apocalyptic. But in the central part, everything was okay. And we were relaxed for a while. But then the situation changed just in two days. And even as it was happening, Olha says it was still hard to believe. We saw that it was going to be just temporary, but it has become permanent. People thought this probably won't last more than a week, right? Everyone believes that it was going to be and Nobody could imagine that it was going to be not days, but weeks, and hope that it's not going to be now four months or years. For Marina, the reality started sinking in. Like three, four days later, we realized that nothing is getting better. And then the bombing was getting closer and louder and more often and worse and worse and worse. And then a few days later, we had no gas. We had to cook in the yards, just cutting the trees from the yards, making fires. They were like already dead bodies in the central part of the city. And I talked to some people who told about their neighbor. She just came out of her building to cook something on fire. And then the shell just got into this yard. Her body was just uh, like falling into pieces. And that was the moment when they realized that another shell can land right now, right next to us. We will just fall into pieces and no one will ever know about that even. Thousands are reported dead. And for those still alive, the only way they had to get news was to meet in person. So we were just going to the drama theater because some policemen in the city and some soldiers from the front line were coming, bringing food to kids and people living in the drama theater. And we could know some news from them. We were going there every morning, like at 8 a.m. And we were staying there until 12, 1 p.m., 2 p.m., almost the whole day, waiting for the policemen or for the soldiers to come and announce that we're allowed to leave the city. And when the air bombing started, we knew about that because we heard the airplane. And the place we ran away was the drama theater. It was like, I don't know, like a church like very sacred place because everybody was so sure that Russians would never bomb it. Olha was spending a lot of her time there too. Drama theater at that moment was like the spot of meeting. She says everything else was just disappearing. Kindergartens, uh, schools, because they were bombed constantly. The picture of apocalypse, strangely speaking, the smell of the gunpowder... And uh, you couldn't see the sky at all because it was all in smoke. A colossal blast echoes across the besieged city of Mariupol. But this isn't a military target. It's a maternity ward and children's hospital. On March 15th, 
Almost three weeks into the siege, Olha says a friend came by. Uh, she knew my address because it, if you don't know somebody's address, so you can't communicate with this person. Mm-hmm. She just came to me and said, Olha, someone told that there was a corridor that day. And she said, we are going to try to leave the city. So please quickly get your clothes and let's go. This is a humanitarian corridor. So a safe passage out. Safe, relatively safe. Ukraine announced the corridor. But without communication, it was hard for Olha and many others in Mariupol to know what was announced. She says she was told this corridor was only for private cars. But they weren't even sure that was true. And they took quickly what I could, my husband, my cat, and we took some people as well who didn't have cars or whose cars had been destroyed and uh, tried to leave the cities. It was really dangerous. And uh, frankly, we had uh, even an argument with my husband. He said, Ola, we are going to be killed there. Was it because your husband wanted to stay? My husband was sure that we were going to be shot uh, on our way. But still, I insisted. And since the decision was taken very quickly, he had no opportunity to argue. We could hear the shots every 15 minutes here and see the aircraft. And uh, each aircraft had two bombs. So when you see the aircraft, you understand that there are going to be two hits. And we tried uh, several times to get out of the city. Very many places were blocked. It took us several hours to go the distance, which usually takes 40 minutes. We managed to get to the first point. Like a a checkpoint? And is this a checkpoint of Russian soldiers or Ukrainian? Of Russian, 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 yes. It's now about 200 kilometers of uh, occupied territory. Remember, Mariupol itself lies in occupied territory. Territory claimed by the Donetsk People's Republic, which supports Russia. They took our passports. They went to some, like, uh, holes in the ground. It was like, you know, the office. I don't know. It's, it's, it's real. I don't know. I still can't believe that it's happening. What were you thinking at that point? They took your passports. They have guns. It's animal fear all the time. You're all the time in stress. Just, you can't be sure what is going to be a life in a minute. So you are just taking a risk and trying to save your life. For three weeks, we hadn't had... Any shower, hot water, hot tea was the most, you know, like, values have changed in my life now dramatically. Olha and her husband were starting to feel better. Like, they'd almost made it. And then... When we had already seen the Ukrainian flag and we could feel safe, our cars started to be hit by the mines attack. They look like big bullets. These coming out of the sky, or? Russians were throwing them on our road, and the second car before us, it had the straight hit. Unfortunately, there was a child, the family, and unfortunately, all of them, they were wounded, treated in the hospital. Things that they are safe and sound now. Marina, it turns out, was close behind Olha. She also left through the humanitarian corridor on March 15th. It was like 1 or 2 p.m. We jumped into the car and we tried to leave the city, but the traffic jam was insane. So we just turned back and spent another night in Mariupol. 
We didn't come back to the apartment because the bombs were falling just next to the building. So we found a huge building with very thick walls and we spent the night there. I didn't sleep that night because it was freezing. And next morning we went to the drama theater again to find some friends to tell them that we're leaving. We didn't find those friends and we just left. And like five minutes before we get into the car, we heard this horrible sound of bombing and we realized that the bomb was very, very close to us. And someone was running from drama theater and told us it was drama theater. We couldn't believe that. 300 people are said to have died in the bombing of the theater in Mariupol last week. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces bombed a theater used as a shelter in Mariupol and took over another hospital, locking in hundreds of civilians. All these days we didn't let ourselves to cry because it would kill us faster than bombs. But that moment I cried for the first time because we still had these friends, the family of three people, and we knew they lived in drama theater, not in the basement even, but on the first floor. And when we heard that the theater was bombed, we realized that they probably didn't survive. Olha was already in Lviv. But she and her husband were monitoring the messaging app Telegram closely for any news of their city. You've seen the images of the theater. My husband, he was the first who saw this. And he came up to me and asked me if I could stand. And he then showed me the picture. It was really painful. And uh, uh, to see it, it was the place we went to each day. And I knew many people staying there, women, old people, children. Ukrainian officials are now saying at least 300 people were killed in the theater bombing. But it took days for that number to come out. Any information from Mariupol is sporadic and often hard to trust. The last journalist, a team from the Associated Press, left the city a few days before Olha and Marina managed to get out. The United States and the EU have officially declared Russian military forces committed war crimes in Ukraine, pointing to Mariupol. I asked Olha what she thought. I want to share with you a quote from the EU's top diplomat on foreign affairs, Joseph Burrell, who last week said, what's happening now in Mariupol is a massive war crime, destroying everything, bombarding and killing everybody. In your experience, based on what you saw, was what happened in Mariupol a war crime? Did you see anything that amounted to that? It is. It's an absolutely 100, 1,000% war crime. It can't be happening. They're killing the future of Mariupol, they are killing the opportunities of Mariupol, they are killing the childhood of Mariupol children, and they are killing children and people physically. It's an absolute war crime, and uh, I think that there must be even some other term, because war crime sounds not so much uh, strong to describe all of this horrible situation. Now, on the other side of Ukraine, Olha says... It's strange not hearing the bombs. She's not used to it. 
You mentioned that it's hard to feel safe. You're in Lviv now. Do you feel any sense of safety? I feel tension like every Ukrainian citizen now because uh, I understand that this war is going on. And uh, several times a day and the night you can hear the sirens. But still, of course, I feel much safer physically than in Mariupol. But I feel uh, really terrible psychologically because each day I think about the city and about the people. Because I know we can renovate and rebuild the city, but we can't uh, get the people back. They still haven't been able to get Olha's mom out. Right now, the mayor of Mariupol is asking for the city to be evacuated. He says 160,000 civilians are still trapped. Russia denies targeting civilians and blames Ukraine for the difficulties for safe passage. Marina also thinks about her grandfather. He's in Mariupol too. He's very stubborn and he said, I was born here, so I will die in this house. But we lost connection like a long time ago. We don't know what is with him now. Marina made it to Poland, though. And she found out her friends from the theater bombing survived. While she tries to figure out what she wants to do with her life, she also can't help checking back on what's happening to her city. She recently heard other friends who were stuck there were evacuated to Russia. Russia is providing a new route out of Mariupol. And they just stayed overnight in a school without any food. They still have their documents on them because I read in the news that Russians take documents from some people. But my friends still have their Ukrainian passports. But who knows for how long and who knows what Russians will do to them. The worst case scenario, she says, is if Russia were to force the men to fight. It's especially dangerous for men because they can send them to fight against Ukraine. But for now, even after all of this, Mariupol hasn't fallen into Russian hands. I don't want to believe that Mariupol will be a part of Russia. And of course, we all hope for better and try not to think about like another scenarios. For Marina, it's hard to understand why all of this happened, why the city she came to love and to show off to the world became the biggest target of the war so far. But there is one thing she keeps thinking about. It was a soldier, a Ukrainian from the East who supported Russia, who said something to her father as they were trying to leave Mariupol. One guy told us, for these eight years you lived so well, you were so happy in this city and now you're refugees and everybody feel pity for you. I was afraid my dad will reply something to him because it was very hard to bear these comments because it was so unfair what he said, but we would pay a really high price if he would reply something. So I was just praying, don't say anything, don't say anything. We just have to get out of here at any price. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya Al-Milek and Munira Al-Dosari are The Take's engagement producers. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. Special thanks to Liz Cookman for her help with this episode. We'll be back 